And the lectionary text for Trinity Sunday comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes we come to the realization that God is much bigger than we ever realized, and our God boxes are too small, way too small. That's what happens to the prophet Isaiah in his vision of the divine throne. Isaiah finds himself in the temple, which was thought to contain God, thought to house God. But he quickly realizes that it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the temple to contain the glory of the Lord. Just the hem of God's robe is enough to bring the temple to capacity. The Lord is high and lifted up, higher and loftier than Isaiah or the temple architects ever could have realized. The God box that was the temple was too small, way too small. Not only that, but all of Isaiah's religious sensibilities begin to fall apart as the scene unfolds. The seraphs, for one thing, have gone crazy and are abandoning their posts. Seraphs were flaming snakes with wings put in place in the ancient Near East as a kind of divine bodyguard. Their outstretched wings were depicted in religious art as protecting the gods while they sat on their thrones. If you look at the insert in your bulletin, you'll see two images of seraphs on the front from the ancient Near East, one from the Egyptians and one from the Hittites. The Hittite seraph, if you look closely, has six wings. These are cool looking, right? These are my kind of guardian angels. You wouldn't want to mess with them. But not so the seraphs that Isaiah sees in his vision. Uh, these seraphs are not protecting God. They're protecting themselves, bracing for dear life. With six wings, with their six wings, they're covering their faces and their feet, and they're flying away, calling out warnings to one another, 
holy, 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 mayday, SOS, look out. The whole earth is full of God's glory. The pivots on the thresholds of the temple begin to shake and smoke clouds the scene. And it seems like the hem of God's robe is going to cause the temple to burst at its seams. And in the midst of the ringing anticipation of God's voice, it dawns on Isaiah in a kind of eureka moment. Holy smokes, literally, my God box is too small, way too small. And so Isaiah says what any of us would say in a moment of such theophany and dread and awe. He says, woe, (laughs) woe is me. When we realize that our God box is way too small, it hits us like we swallowed a brick. And we fix our eyes on the Lord high and lifted up and ready ourselves, like the prophet Isaiah, for God to make the divine self known to us all over again. But on God's terms this time, not our terms. You see, the chronic human problem with our sometimes tenuous relationship with God throughout history is that we humans keep wanting to construct a box around God. We keep wanting to contain the Almighty, because if we can contain the Almighty, then we can protect ourselves, bless ourselves, and gain access to the marvelous and glorious divine power and bring it under our influence. This is what temples were for, after all. Temples were God traps. If you wanted to capture a god and thereby gain access to the deity's power, what would you do? You would build a really nice house for that god to live in. You would build a temple, a nicer abode even than the king's palace. And you'd build a throne for that god to sit on. You would overlay it with gold, of course. You'd set up a nice heavenly host of cherubim and seraphim to protect and glorify the God. And you'd offer animal sacrifices in the temple to satiate the God's appetites and demonstrate your devotion. The gods like barbecue, too. And after enjoying your fine dining, five-star accommodation, and secret service level security, the God wouldn't want to leave your temple. As long as the God's presence remained in the box... As long as you kept the gods satisfied and remained in good standing, the god would keep your enemies at bay, water your crops, and bless you with children. Temples were god traps at the dead-end cul-de-sac of a one-way street designed to capture the power of a god the way Aladdin's lamp captures the genie. Just look at the image on the back of your sermon insert from the ancient temple of Ein Dara. Do you see the giant footprints at the entrance to the temple? Those are a god's feet. And do you notice they're only heading in one direction? (laughs) You see, once the temple had captured a god, there that god would remain. No need to leave a god box that lavish. Now, am I overreacting here? Was it really that bad to build a temple? I mean, sure, we don't want to capture god. But isn't this a pretty good setup for both parties when you think about it? God gets glory and devotion. We get blessings and divine presence. It's a pretty fair deal, right? But the problem is it's manipulative. 
putting God in a box, tries to provoke a certain desired behavior from God on our behalf. Whenever we try to manipulate God, what we're ultimately doing is trying to seat ourselves on God's throne. This is a little something the Bible calls idolatry. And Isaiah's vision of the divine throne room deconstructs all of these misconceptions about the purpose and the power of the temple. As a God box, the temple was too small, way too small. The ways in which we try to box God up today have changed quite a bit since the year that King Uzziah died. These days, we don't offer burnt sacrifices or put much stock in the security services of flaming serpents. But there are other ways in which we try to put a box around God, aren't there? It's what we do every time we worship the God we want over and against the God who is. The God who is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians believe that God created human beings in God's image. And critics of our faith often accuse Christians of creating God in our image. And they're not always wrong about that. We sometimes worship the God we want over and against the God who is because we want to instruct and encourage God to act how we want God to act. We want to put God into the box of our own image. We want God to be like us, right? We want God to oppose who we oppose, vote like we vote, like the things that we like. But when we do this, we come to the realization by God's grace that our God boxes are too small, way too small. Is there a particular box in which you sometimes try to snag the hem of God's robe? Do you ever worship God according to your own wishes instead of according to God's self-revelation? We all have God boxes, and they're often as hard to break down as that Amazon box they delivered your new couch in. God boxes are thick and gnarly. I've sometimes tried to put God in the box of decency and decorum. I'm someone who likes to be in control, who likes to have my plans in place. I like things to be in order. That's why I'm a Presbyterian. When it comes to worship, I love a neat and tidy liturgy, a service that ends right on time, and a clear rationale for everything that happens in worship. Nothing pains me like seeing an out-of-place asterisk in the bulletin, right? And surely this is how God wants it to be. God agrees with me. I know many of you agree with me on this. I've heard your feedback. A few years ago, my friend and I had the privilege of worshiping in Kenya near the border of Uganda in the hill country. And at that point in our travels, I had worshipped enough in Kenya to know the service was not going to end in an hour. But this time, the service hadn't even begun an hour after we arrived. Or maybe it had, I didn't know. When we arrived, the drums started. And as people came into worship, they danced all around the sanctuary. And as the sanctuary filled up, there was no more room for dancing. So the people just jumped in place, just like this. On and on and on. No signs of stopping. Finally, my friend, you know, threw caution to the wind and he joined the festive throng of jumping. But I hesitated. 
I had been ready for a long, rousing sermon and some emotional, expressive prayers, but I was not ready for jumping. For a while, I resisted, but then I realized, you know what? My God box is too small, way too small. This congregation was celebrating like they knew the ruler of the universe, high and lifted up, was there in their midst. Sometimes when we worship the God of decency and decorum, we forget that God is also the God of unbounded joy. And we realize that our God box is too small, way too small. I had a friend named Dave who was a teaching pastor at a church plant I used to attend on Tuesday nights. He was a great preacher and connected really well, especially with my generation. The church was growing and exciting and vibrant. And then suddenly Dave announced he was moving his wife and three young children to Mozambique to become a missionary. They would be selling their house and cars and taking a permanent southeastward leap of faith. And at first I had a very judgmental reaction to him. I mean, why would you leave when you're already doing such a good job at what you're doing right now? You're already serving God as a pastor. Why become a missionary? We need you here in this country. My generation especially needs your gifts and talents. Dave. But then I realized my God box was too small. Way too small. Dave and his family were abandoning themselves to God like they knew the ruler of the universe, high and lifted up, was calling their name. And they said, here am I, send me. Sometimes when we worship the God of caution and calculation, we forget that God is also the God of lavish generosity and radical discipleship. And we realize that our God box is too small, way too small. What other God boxes do you see as you look at the world around you? What are the limits that you place around God when you look at your own life? Do you put a box around God by means of your doubts or your resentments or your resignations or your fears? When we believe the age-old lie that money will be what makes us happy, and when we place our trust in worldly wealth and prosperity... Well, we wind up worshiping the God of wealth. And there's temples to the God of mammon all across our culture. We do well to remember that a throne overlaid with gold was not enough to accommodate even the hem of God's robe. Our God box is too small, way too small. Or when we think that the God of all nations is first of all the God of our nation... And when we pray that God would defeat our enemies and box us in from the rest of the world's problems, well, we find ourselves worshiping the warrior God. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we invest an awful lot of treasure in vanquishing our foes. We do well to remember that Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Our God box is too small. Way too small. So the world is full of God boxes, and God is always having to resist our impulse to cast our own image onto God, when in fact, God's self-disclosure is Jesus Christ. Anything less than Jesus Christ, as revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
is way too small. After all, this is the triune God we're talking about here. The God who is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. In the book of Revelation, we saw another image into the divine throne room. But this vision does not take place in some kind of God trap temple. There are no walls to box in the hem of God's robe, no flaming seraphs to guard the God not vulnerable to a human coup. There are only those who bow before the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world and clothed the redeemed in the pure linen of the saints. And we see that the risen and ascended Jesus will reign forever and ever. When we recognize that Jesus is king, the God of riches bows before the son of a carpenter and a Nazarene named Mary. When we recognize that Jesus is king, the warrior God bows before the prince of peace. When we recognize that Jesus is king, the God of self-preservation bows before the one who gave it all and who summons us to follow. Take up your cross and follow me. When we recognize that Jesus is king, the God of decency and decorum casts its crown before the throne and falls face down with all the saints joining their everlasting song. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen and amen.